Hey y'all, thank y'all for tuning in to Black Girl True Crime. I'm your host, Kay Simone, and today's episode is about the mysterious death of Tamla Horsford. Y'all, November 3rd, 2018, Tamla goes to this all-white sleepover in Cummings, Georgia. Now, November 4th, she's found unresponsive in the backyard, and her cause of death was multiple blunt force trauma injuries and ruled an accident. Not once, but fucking twice. Now, it was just ruled that she fell over this balcony to her death. I'm going to kick this episode off with reading a portion of a letter that was penned from the Horsford family attorney, Ralph E. Fernandez, to Leander Horsford. He said, and I quote, It appears Tamla was involved in a struggle. There were abrasions noted consistent with that scenario. There were parallel scratches to one arm, and since they were fresh, photos would have proven recent use of defensive force but having no photos injures to our detriment. The town of Cumming has a history which raises eyebrows, and after conducting my extensive review, I have come to the conclusion that the truth never had a chance here. End quote. Y'all come on, get <laughs> Y'all gonna have to get the fuck up. Get the fuck up. We gonna get in the car and we are taking this view to Forsyth County, Georgia. Y'all do not exit. Keep the windows up and these doors fucking locked because black folk can't come here after dark. The world is fucked up, y'all. Let's talk about it. When Tamla Horsford first died, all I really knew was that she died at the sleepover because she fell over a balcony. Alcohol and drugs, they said it played a major role in her tripping and falling to her death. Since she was at this all-white sleepover in one of the most racist counties in the U.S. of A., of course, as a collective, niggas all over the world, we perked the fuck up. Now, Tamla's death was ruled an accident, first by the coroner for Forsyth County, then the GBI took over her case, and they sided with Forsyth. Now that now I understand what I didn't get before, and I'm saying this because we all thought that when the GBI reopened her case, she was going to finally get justice. Like, this case finally got into the right hands. I hate to inform y'all, this was basically the Klan investigating the Klan. And I don't know if y'all listen to Morbid Podcast. It's hosted by Ash and Elena. But y'all should go check them out because a couple of years ago, I first heard the details of Tamla's case. And let me also say they don't sponsor me. I'm not receiving anything from plugging them. But they took a good deep dive into Tamla Horsford's story. And this was prior to her case being reopened by the GBI. And actually, it would be kind of interesting to know how they feel about the GBI's findings and what really happened during that second investigation. Um, but yeah, definitely go check them out. And I will also be plugging the show notes with links from the interviews, incident report, and both autopsies. And I also got information from a book titled The Mysterious Death of Tamla Horsford. So I will be plugging that as well. So major trigger warning, I would say for racism for white supremacy and all the bad things because uh, again we are talking about a murder and we're talking about a cover-up uh, so if you have ever been a victim of injustice this definitely might trigger you so i understand if you have to go ahead and skip my baby come back next time so Forsyth County is located about 40 miles northeast of Atlanta Georgia y'all and it's primarily the white suburbs as of 2018, Forsyth County was one of the wealthiest counties in the United States, but also has a very dark history and deep-seated hatred for Black people. 
The most horrifying event was the erasure of black residents in 1912. A white mob of 500, they drove out the black residents in Forsyth. So their churches, their businesses, and their homes, they were all burned down. As we all know at this point, you know, racial violence leads to the erasure of black generational wealth. So none of that was ever recovered. And still, there's no atonement for that original sin. So for decades, this was an all-white county, and still today, it's considered as a sundown area. Much of what was stolen and destroyed was in Oscarville, Georgia. Y'all, I never knew that they used Lake Lanier to cover up this 1912, you know, massacre and this cleansing. I never knew that Lake Lanier was a result of that. Um, but much of what was stolen and destroyed, again, it's in Oscarville, and now it lies under Lake Lanier. As of the 2020 census, out of the 251,283 people residing in Forsyth, only 10,455 of them are Black residents. And in Cummings, Georgia, there were about 450 Black residents, and this really would explain how she ended up at the sleepover with all these white women. The black populace, y'all, is pretty much non-existent. Oprah did a documentary in 87, and she investigated the racial cleansing. And basically, she, she was questioning motherfuckers like, y'all, what is going on that this county is still an all-white county and a sundown area? In 1987, but I've been told that this documentary is on YouTube, um, so that might be the easiest way for y'all to go watch it. And I do suggest y'all do because it's interesting. Now, the current sheriff for Forsyth is a man named Ron Freeman, and he was just starting his career with the sheriff's department the year Oprah went to Forsyth. So keep Ron Freeman in your mind for later. To talk about Tamla's upbringing and who she was as a person. So Tamla Horsford was born Tamla Iana St. Jor to Kirtland St. Jor and Elizabeth Potts, October 10th, 1978 in St. Vincent and the Grenadines. I am not geographically savvy. And I had actually tried to record this podcast um, with Coach AJ, but baby, it is 3.04 in the morning where I am at and 4.04 in the morning where she is at. But I gotta get this episode out. But I had made mention that when she came to visit me, because Coach AJ, y'all, lives in Canada. When she came to visit me in the States, I remember I was working on this podcast, uh, on this episode, y'all, last month. And I was just sitting at my computer and I was on Google Maps. And she was sitting on the couch and she's like, what the fuck are you doing? I was dropping myself in St. Vincent and the Grenadines to try and figure out what the area looked like. Uh, so I was really invested because, again, I'm not geographically savvy. Um, but what I did find was that this is an area in the Caribbean Sea, and Tamla is from the capital city, Kingstown. I also dropped myself there specifically. And so the Grenadines, it refers to the Spanish city of Granada, which lies south of St. Vincent. Now, if you go north, you'll find St. Lucia, and east, you should find Barbados. In 1989, Kirtland, Elizabeth, Tamla, and her sister Summer, they moved to the Bronx, New York. Childhood and the education, it's a bit murky, but Tamla migrated to Florida and attended Florida Atlantic University. And this would have been in the late 90s, early 2000s. While in Florida, she meets a little boot thing, a thing, Mr. Leander Horsford, and they get married, and then they had their son Jaden in 2004. And also, just before I get too far ahead of myself, um, 
Tamla, she she had that that accent that that just I think it was probably because of how long um she was in St. Vincent and the Grenadines. Um they said that she had just had that accent. I don't want to call it a drawl cuz that kind of sounds like, you know, like south southern drawl. That's not what I'm saying. Um but she definitely had like that Caribbean accent. And this crazy you don't hear it in, in Mr. Leander Horsford her husband, but he does mention that both of them are from the islands. And I'll get back to that later on. So Let's see. I already got to Jaden, how they had their first son. So Leander, he has a daughter. Her name is Akishma. And she is from a previous relationship. But Tamla raised her as her own. And from a young age, Akishma referred to Tamla as mama. That really talks to the type of person that she is. And together, Leander and Tamla had Peyton, Gavin, Brayden, and Mason. At the time of Tamla's death in 2018, their ages ranged from four years old to 14 years old and that is just so sad like the four-year-old baby like I wonder like what he remembers of his mama like it just rips my heart y'all so in 2012 Leander's job it called for their relocation uh, so the family they pack up and they move to Cummings Georgia by all accounts Tamla she's the life of the party but was also described as classy and loyal to her friends if y'all go Google this woman, like she exudes grace in class and her children, they were well behaved because they were being raised by good, kind hearted people. Tamla was big about her family and was very much in love with her husband, Leander, and she was one of those football moms. She never missed a game and she supported her sons in everything they did. Their sons, Peyton and Gavin, they were both on feeder teams for North Forsyth and this is how Tamla would end up meeting these bum ass bitches and attending the sleepover. Now, Leander said that basically, Tamla, I want y'all to picture this. So her sons is ripping shit up on the football field. And here's Tamla on the sideline. And she's like a little bit thing. Like she just has this blow horn. And whenever the ref would call a foul, she would go into the blow horn and say, you can't stop greatness. And when Mr. Leander Horsford, when he was describing this, like he just broke down crying like just shattered me but yeah this woman would just run up and down the basketball field she was very much involved so Tamla she was the glue really and she ran the hell out of her household like just when black women so Leander he only wanted a hundred dollars out of his checks that he brought home and then he would just throw the rest at Tamla you know and she would make sure everything was good a family friend, Michelle Graves, said that when she first met Tam, she was impressed with how the Horsford children were being raised, and they were always respectful and referred to her as Miss Michelle. Tam and Michelle, they would build bonfires on the weekends, and the families, they would link up for um, parties, like, you know, like some good music and some good food. Everybody minded their goddamn business, and life was okay. And another thing about Tamla, like, she was just known to look out for everyone else, and nine times out of ten, she was going to be more concerned about you than what she was about herself. And it's just important to shed light on who Tamla was as a person because, excuse me, after this sleepover, her husband, her husband, Leander, he was left with so many questions because a lot of shit just didn't make any sense, y'all. And it's incredibly sad. Like, I was going to plug this at the end, but I'm going to say it right now. Mr. Leander Horsford, 
He says, it, it would be one thing if this was an accident. I'm just asking that y'all make it make sense. If this was an accident, I would be able to accept that. Like, all Mr. Horsford, all the Horsford family, all they ever wanted, including her parents, like, they just wanted the truth. But when I explained to y'all how many lies were spun, how everybody knew each other, and how Forsyth County Sheriff's Office should have never had control over this scene to begin with, and then the GBI should have never reopened it. Um, I think it was, I think her name was like Tamika Mallory. I'm so sorry, y'all correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but she said that this case should have just went up to the Department of Justice. And again, I say, this was the Klan investigating the Klan. But now let's get into who was at the sleepover. So Tamla met John Myers uh, through her sons, again, because the kids played football together. And a week before the sleepover, Tamla and the three sons, they had gone to John Myers' home for the first time to carve pumpkins. And the next weekend, Tamla was invited back over by Stacy Smith. And I say Stacy Smith because she was the one that was tasked with planning John's 46th birthday party. And the plan was just to have it at John's house so no one really had to do too much as far as makeup or getting overly dressed. And from what I read, so John only wanted to watch the LSU versus Alabama football game and drink liquor and eat some gumbo. <coughs> Excuse me, y'all. And mind you, y'all might hear me sound a little bit asthmatic and, you know, like a little bit, you know, crazy, raspy voice. I have had a upper respiratory infection for a very long time. So y'all just bear with me, okay? <laughs> and I appreciate y'all's patience. So back to bitch-ass John. And I also want to point out that John's name is not spelled like J-O-H-N. Again, this is a woman. It's spelled J-E-A-N-N-E. So I'm pretty sure, yeah, it said like John. So again, she only wanted to watch the LSU versus Alabama football game. She wanted to get lit and eat some gumbo, some unseasoned ass gumbo. So the women and men who showed up for the party, that was Jennifer Morrell, Thomas Smith, Stacy Smith, Sarah Cockrum, Marcy Harden, Nicole Lawson, Bridget Fuller, Jose Barrera, and Madeline Lombardi. Jose Barrera is the younger boyfriend of John Myers, and Tom and Tom Smith is Stacy's husband. Madeline Lombardi is referred to as John Myers' aunt, but is a close friend of John's mother and would stay basically with John on and off, and this time she took up residency in the basement. All of the other women met John over the years, and they had become close friends. Tomla really didn't know anyone at the party besides John and Stacy, uh, but she did already become acquainted with Bridget because they had carved the pumpkins together a week prior. Now, what's very strange is that men were not originally supposed to attend this adult sleepover. Leander Horsford said that his wife wouldn't have gone to a sleepover without him if she had known men were going to be there. Also, Leander didn't know that Jose and Tom were present until after Tamla had died. And the reason that I say that this is strange is because Tom and Stacy Smith, they had hung out with Leander and Tamla on previous occasions. They had known each other, you know, since their kids were smaller. And if men were going to be present, why wasn't Leander invited? Now, the day of the sleepover, Leander cancels his own plans because Tamla, she never really got out. 
Again, she's the homemaker, very involved in the kids' lives. She basically asked Leander if it's okay if she could go, you know, just to do a temp check to make sure he would be home to watch the kids. And he agreed, you know, reluctantly, because he had had his own plans. And he also knew Tamla really didn't want to go to this party, y'all. She didn't want to go. The only reason that she did go, one is because, you know, her kids play football with Sean's kids. And number two, as I stated earlier, she was just the type of person to really care about how somebody else felt. And as Leander put it, like, not to say, like, she was overly concerned with what people thought about her. She was just concerned about other people's feelings, period. And she just wanted to be there for John's uh, 46th birthday party. She wanted to be a good friend. So now, basically, what ends up happening is that um, even though, you know, Leander was reluctant about her going, he said prior to her walking out the door, she bent over the couch to give him a kiss. And then she did something goofy because whenever they would, you know, like nip back and forth to have little petty arguments, one of them would always do something funny to make the other laugh. And she had also prepared a casserole for Leander and the boys so they wouldn't go hungry. And Leander, he just decides that, okay, me and the boys were going to do a bonfire. Unfortunately, after Tamla Horsford walks out her door, she never comes back home alive. And she would only speak to Mr. Horsford at least one other time before her death. So John's house was located on at, wait, what the fuck did I put here? And I ain't editing shit, y'all. Okay, here we go. So yeah, John's house was located at 4450 Woodlick Court. And the sleepover started between 6 and 7 p.m. Tamla, she arrives around 8.30 to 9 because, again, she's getting everybody settled at her own house. When Tamla arrives, Jose and Tom, they're in the basement watching the game. And she brings a bottle of Coralejo Tequila Reposado. I believe I did say that right. Kind of right. Now, it was supposed to be a birthday present for Jean. But Jean thought it smelled horrible. Instead of just declining the gift... The girls passed it around, making fun of how horrible it smelled. Tamla basically drunk it for herself, as she should have, because, like, fuck y'all bum-ass bitches. Y'all invited me over here. You said we was going to be drinking liquor and eating gumbo, and y'all worried about how tequila smells. But everyone who arrived, for the most part, they had their own liquor. And I want to point out that at no point during this night was Tamla drunk off her ass. Tamla always held her liquor well. And again, Leander said that they were both from the islands. They grew up drinking. And he had witnessed Tamla drink a half bottle of tequila and then go salsa dancing six inch heels. In no way was she a messy drunk. And being pissy drunk really wasn't her MO for the evening. But you want to know who was shit brick ass drunk? Jennifer Morrell. Jennifer Morrell was so belligerent and pissy drunk. At one point later on, she gets carried to bed. <laughs> they were just like okay bitch get the fuck on and go sleep this shit off because it ain't fun when you acting like this <clears throat> so Tamla was pretty social during the party and many of the party goers like they remembered her being friendly and talkative and when the LSU game reached halftime Madeline Lombardi she took her old ass downstairs to bed and Jose and Tom at some point they come back upstairs and this is where they finish watching the game and, you know, they get some food and they continue drinking. This is when things get a little bit fucking weird and I get body chills. 
According to Leander Horsford, there is a video taken at the party and he could see that his wife was visibly upset, y'all. And he said, and I quote, I know that face. I know my wife. It is safe to assume that this is after the men had come upstairs because they could be heard in the background. Leander said he knows the face that she was making, so he knew 100% that she was pissed off about something. But he would never find out why, because the person she was talking to was pissy-ass Jennifer Morrell, who was conveniently drunk off her ass and wouldn't remember the night, basically the next day. So 10.30 p.m. rolls around, and Tamla, she FaceTimes uh, Leander Horsford, and she goes to show off her husband and her sons. And at some point, she calls Akishma as well. Akishma is pregnant with Tamla and Leander's first grandchild, and she never gets to meet him, y'all. But Tamla, she was seen gushing about them both uh, while on the call. Also, there is another video that Michelle Graves said is out there where... Tamla, like one of her other sons was at a sleepover as well so everybody wants to say oh she drunk she drunk almost a whole bottle of tequila this that and the third she is heard saying in a clear voice to her son keep me informed that don't sound like somebody who was pissy drunk to me now also at 10 30 p.m nicole lawson and sarah cockerum leave the sleepover Around midnight, you know, everybody gathers around the table so they can play some cards against humanity. And after the game of cards, everyone begins to clean up and they say Tamla is left in the living room. 12.30 a.m. is when Tamla tries to go home and this is when she is stopped by Jose Barrera, Tom and Stacy Smith, Bridget Fuller, and John. And they tell Tamla that she's too drunk to leave and that she should just stay. What is crazy about this is that everyone was drinking and other partygoers were allowed to leave. And Uber could have been called, Leander could have been called. It is bizarre that she is told to stay. And Leander said his wife would have made it home. She would have made it home to him. And Tamla's coat and bag would sit by the front door. I'm just going to say this now. Jose Barrera, he's full of shit because... He lies to the police and says he wasn't quite sure what she was doing, like if she was waiting until morning or if she was staying and going to bed. So you know exactly what she was planning to do because you convinced her to stay. Now, at first, Jose Barrera says him and Sean went to sleep at 1 a.m. Later, he changes his story to 1.30 a.m. At 1.39 a.m., the garage door was open, and I'm going to describe these times um, that were provided by the security system that John has, and it's, it's like an app uh, that you download onto your phone. So at 1.39 a.m., the garage door is open, then it was closed at 1.40, then it reopened at 1.40 a.m. and wasn't closed again. The last person to see Tamla alive was allegedly Bridget Fuller. And Bridget is preparing to go home when she sees Tamla eating a bowl of gumbo. And there, she says two different things. First, she says she was on her way out the door. She sees Tamla eating the gumbo, waves goodbye. And then in another interview, she says that Tamla Horsford walks her to the front door and gives her a hug. And they have like a little chit chat for a second. And then she goes outside to her husband who's waiting in the car. The weird thing about this is that, number one, Bridget was allowed to go home. 
And Bridget was going home because, number one, Jennifer Morrell had pissed her the fuck off because she was pissy-ass drunk. And number two, Bridget says, oh, I don't I don't really stay at other people's houses. Like, at some point, I have to go home um, because I'm more comfortable at home. But what about Tamla Horsford wanting to go home at 1230 and being told that she couldn't? But here Bridget Fuller is, tra tramps in her ass right on out the door at 1.47 a.m., and again, she says that Tamla walked her to the door. Bridget's husband would later say that Tamla never showed up at that front door and his wife walked out alone. And according to the security app, the front door opened and closed at 1.47 a.m. It sounds like a clear, you know, the door opened, you walk out and you close it behind you. That really isn't enough time for conversation, hugs and goodbyes. During the night, Tamla is said to have been the only smoker, so she was in and out of the house as she pleased. The last thing partygoers remember was that Tamla said she would go out for one last smoke and then call it one, and this would have been around 2 a.m. The security app said that the back door opened at 1.49 a.m., closed at 1.50 a.m., opened at 1.57 a.m., and then it never closed again. Marcy Harden, she leaves at 4.10 a.m., Paula Seals leaves at 7.45 a.m. And Tom and Stacy Smith leave at 8.30 a.m., 15 minutes before Tamla is discovered in the backyard by Madeline Lombardi. According to the initial report in a statement that was given by John Myers, Madeline Lombardi wakes up and heads outside to the backyard to see what the weather is like. And this is when she discovers Tamla face down in the backyard. Madeline watches her for a second to see if she's moving, um, but she wasn't. So she goes straight to John's room, and this is when she tells them about Tamla. Now, out of Madeline Lombardi's own mouth, she says something completely different. And y'all, there are so many different versions of how Tamla Horsford's body is found and what time she is found. So I don't want to hear anything about Tamla's death being an inconvenience to these bitches because y'all lied at every fucking turn. Y'all lied. Nobody just goes to your house to spend the night and then ends up dead. And everybody collectively goes to sleep at the same time. So they're conveniently removed from whatever the fuck happened next. Like where there's smoke, there's fire, y'all. So out of Madeline Lombardi's own mouth, she tells the investigators that around 8.45 a.m., she went to make coffee and saw a disturbing sight from the basement. And basically, she's staring out the window, and this is when she sees Dalmatian pajamas. So she didn't start the coffee. She got on her knees and said a prayer. Then she ran upstairs. Madeline said she knocked on Jean and Jose's door. No one answered. So she goes back downstairs to splash water in her face. Then she ran back upstairs and was led inside John's room and she explains that something is wrong with her friend from the islands. This is what the fuck we're dealing with. You know Tamla Horsford's name. You did all that shit and basically said all them fucking lies. You know good and damn well you did not get on your knees and pray. Mind you, this woman did all of this instead of just rolling Tamla Horsford over to see if she was okay. Now... <laughs> I put in my notes, I was like, this bum-ass bitch, be fucking for real. Um, but, yeah, it only gets crazier, y'all. Now, at approximately 9 a.m., John Myers calls 911, and 
what the fuck were we doing for about 15 minutes that we couldn't call 911 on time. Um, but it's, of course, the report that Tamla was in the backyard. Dispatch asks John, what is going on? And instead of starting with, you know, my friend is in the backyard, like, you motherfuckers come quick. Like, something is off. Excuse me. Uh, but John begins to explain the details of the sleepover, mentioning that there were people over last night and they were drinking. She said, and I quote, most of us went to bed and one of them stayed on the balcony and she was drinking. John says they found her face down in the backyard and says maybe she fell off the balcony, but she's stiff. The operator asks, is she breathing? And John says, I don't know. She's face down. Okay, so you don't know if this woman is breathing, but how the fuck do you know that she's stiff? And you would think that the first instinct would have been to turn her over especially if her face is mushed into the grass but Jean is explaining the circumstances that she believes led to Tamla falling off the balcony y'all this entire 911 call screams bullshit and Jean rushes off the phone they say it's because she was in distress and Jose Barrera hops on and the first question dispatch asks him is if Tamla is breathing Jose says she's not moving, she's not breathing, and that he tried to assess her and she's completely face down in the backyard. And when I say assess her, it will forever be unclear on if he moved her arm or if he moved her leg. And so repeating John, he goes, she's stiff. Dispatch asks him if there's any blood anywhere and, and Jose says he doesn't know if he should turn her over and that she's face down. At this point in the 911 call, dispatch is getting a little bit peeved because you dumb motherfuckers cannot answer this simple question. So she asks again for the third time if Tamla is still breathing. And at this point, the 911 call had so much dead air. I was refreshing the link because I thought it was my computer, but it turns out that there was a muted like silence before Jose pops back up and he says, he is not completely sure. The simple question again is if she's breathing, has anybody checked? And Jose goes on to say he's not sure of any blood because he hasn't turned her over. Almost three minutes into the 911 call, no one has answered the fucking question. But dispatch jumps to inquiring if they have ever known Tamla to be suicidal. Jose then begins to explain the circumstances of the night before and what led to everyone going to bed. And there is also mention of a cut on her wrist. He's indicating that this poor woman may have slit her own wrist. But who the fuck is going to cut themselves and throw their bodies off of a, off of a balcony? And I even put that in my notes. I was like, be fucking for real, Jose. And he mentions the last time he saw Tamla was in the kitchen. And he didn't know if she was headed home or if she was going to wait until morning. But sir, you're lying. You knew exactly that she was going to stay because you convinced her to stay. Y'all wouldn't let her go home. And allegedly, there were some party goers that said that Tamla Horsford's phone and her keys have been taken from her. Oh boy, that is a fucking problem. So he mentions that the last time... Oh yeah, sorry, I already said that. So about four minutes into the call. So here we are, four minutes into this 911 call, y'all. And we don't know if Tamla is breathing and she is still face down in the grass. 
But now Jose and Dishbatch, they're discussing the distance between the balcony and ground level. This silly motherfucker, Jose, he says it would be 20 feet from where your feet would be on the railing. Go check on Tamla and roll her the fuck over because y'all are playing. And almost five minutes into the call, no one has attempted to roll this woman over and check on her. Now Jose is telling Dispatch how she would have been on the balcony alone and that she was up the only smoker, mentioning he isn't sure if she fell from the balcony or from the deck. So basically ground level. Jose says he is on the deck and he can see cigarettes and lighters literally doing everything but checking to see if this woman is still alive, failing to render CPR. Dispatch asks about who is still at the party and when they and basically when the party goers left. So Jose, uh, he starts providing this info and mentions he last saw Tamla at 1 a.m. Now a deputy is starting to pull up and there's discussion on how to best direct them to the backyard. During the entire 911 call, Tamla remains face down in the fucking grass and no one really checks to see if she's breathing or not and no one attempts CPR. The first deputy that was on the scene was J.V. Waldrop. And so he goes to the backyard and he says in his initial report that Tamla appeared to be deceased. Instead of rolling her over though, he goes inside the house so he could get statements and information from whoever had stayed the night. Crime scene crews, the coroner's office, and other authorities were notified to respond during this time. But what the fuck about EMS services? Meanwhile, Jose is swearing up and down that a camera would have shown the entire thing. We have these cameras. We got these cameras back up here. All this bullshit, I'll tell y'all right now. John Myers admits later on that she may have deleted some of the videos and the security system needed batteries. Another detective, Detective Spriggs, he arrives on scene, and this may have been around 10.20 a.m. At this point, other deputies, they're on the scene, and the crime scene tape has been put up. Everyone who was still at the house was placed in the front dining room, and everyone who was called back was placed outside. And this was so they could give their statements, but everyone should have been separated immediately. And I'm talking not in two big-ass groups. Like, they had so much time to get their stories together. Excuse me. So they were still moving about and talking to one another. And Spriggs puts in his report that prior to his arrival, Tamla was confirmed deceased. Y'all, please riddle me this. Who the fuck did that? Because only a medical examiner, a coroner, or a medical doctor can call the time of death. Who the fuck are y'all that y'all couldn't turn this woman over and render CPR? But it only gets worse from here, y'all. So the investigator, Mike Christian, he's then contacted. And this bumbling motherfucker, he responds to the scene with the Forsyth County coroner and the crime scene crew. And again, no one ever attempted CPR and EMS would never arrive. And another homeowner said they only saw Tamla come out in a body bag, but an ambulance never came. And I'm going to like describe to y'all how Tamla was found per... Mike Christian's report. He said, and I quote, Tamla Horsford was found in a prone position. Her head was away from the residence and her feet were towards it. Her left arm was at an approximate 40 degree angle from her body and her forearm and hand were bent towards her head in a 10 o'clock position. Her right arm was straightened by her side and she was wearing a one-piece pajama outfit that had dog paw prints on it. Her outfit was clean, but there was a small dirt spot on the right buttock. 
Pamela's right wrist appeared to be fractured or dislocated, and there was a bump on her wrist and a visible bone. On her shins, there were matching cuts, and this could have could have meant that she tripped and fell over a piece of metal landscape edging at ground level. I'm going to just say this now, that this whole she tripped at ground level, this is a story that is concocted by Mike Christian, potentially Lieutenant Andy Caitlin, and John Meyer, and Jose Barrera. And I will continue to explain this later on. And at the Horsford residence, I want to skip over to what Leander is doing during this time. So Leander is upstairs using the bathroom and he hears someone beating on the door. He sends his son to go answer it and his son comes um, basically back up the stairs to tell him that there's a bunch of cops outside. Leander initially thought, you know, it was one of his neighbors who would always call the cops on him and Tamla because of the parties that they threw. I really want to mention that even though the entire block would be turned the fuck up, y'all, this one neighbor would only call the cops on Leander and Tamla. So Leander answers the door and one of the cops asks him, is your name Lee? Leander asks him politely, like, what is this pertaining to? And the cop responds with aggression, asking him again if his name is Lee. Leander says, okay, night. Like, once again, I must ask you, what is this pertaining to? Do you know the cop screamed in Mr. Leander's face, saying, is your name Lee? And Leander says, no, my name is Leander. But once again, what is this pertaining to? The cop says, and I quote, it's about your wife. She's deceased, end quote. Like this poor man, never in the history of fucking ever, like never in the history of niggadom has anyone ever been notified of their family's passing in such a cruel, cold, and callous manner. Like since when is this acceptable? And this is actually very fucked up because Mike Christian is outed by the GBI as, as making fun of the way Mr. Leander was um, notified of Tamla's death. So basically, Leander, he, he's kind of in a shock. Like, what the fuck is going on? He tries to grab his shit um, basically to get the fuck on to see what's going on with his wife because he simply could not take that goofy ass as serious. And he's wondering, like, is it a car crash? What happened? Officers tell Leander it was an accident, but he can't go over to the house. But they've taken care of it. What's really fucked up about this is the fact that Leander is Tom and, uh, Tom and Stacy Smith's friend. But he never got a text or a call from John Myers, Stacy, or Tom. They didn't have the fucking decency to warn him, okay, hey, something happened to Tamla and we, we need you over here. Like, this man had to find out this way from these racist-ass cops. So, Tamla's body was released to the deputy coroner, Kate Bowen, and her body was supposed to go to the GBI. On November 5th, lead investigator Mike Christian, he receives a phone call from the same deputy coroner, and Bowen tells Christian that the medical examiner at the GBI was inquiring where Tamla Horsford's body was. Tamla Horsford was found the morning of the 4th. And her body was supposed to go straight to the GBI, but now it's the 5th, and the GBI is wondering where the fuck she's at. What's really bizarre is that around 10 a.m. that same day, and I'm talking about on the 5th, 
the day after Tamla died. Around 10 a.m., Mike Christian had spoke with Tamla's father, Kirtland, and from jump, her father knew that something was wrong here. He had so many questions that him, along with a family friend, they were invited by Mike Christian to physically come into the sheriff's office headquarters. So basically, Christian could look them in the face and explain it to them again. And so in the report, Christian says that he shows pictures of the crime scene to Kirtland uh, with hopes of it helping him understand. Instead, Kirtland kind of turned the fuck up and he had even more questions. And so the scene was very suspicious to him. Now, Mike tells uh, Kirtland that this is the reason that Tamla's with the GBI for her autopsy. You know, like making it seem like, okay, we want to uncover the mysterious circumstances of her death. That is why she's with the GBI. But her body was actually at the Forsyth County Coroner's Office. And that means that she was laying in a freezer about five minutes from her father. About five minutes from her father. And Mike Christian basically lied to Kirtland. And I want to know what was the reason for that? Why wasn't Tamla's body sent straight to the GBI? Why was she at the Forsyth County Coroner's office? Um, but I'm going to explain why this is also fucked up that she was there for two days. Because again, it just ties into how everyone knew each other. Uh, so Tamla's autopsy was performed on November 6th in the morgue of the GBI division by Andrew Koopmaners. And this is where we kind of start to see how the GBI has us fucked up from jump. I want to mention again that the GBI is who conducted her initial autopsy and they also reopened her case later. They really didn't do us any favors, y'all. And that's the point that I'm really trying to stress. So Koopmeners, he only took pictures of the body bag, Tamla's remains, injuries, and an identification photograph. About five photos were taken, and this is very much unheard of. And this came as such a surprise that the M.E. was interviewed on why he failed to do his job properly. When asked why he didn't take photos, Koopmeaner says that he would have taken more had he known how big the case would be. And that there were no close-ups of the injuries due to a miscommunication with the photographer. He said it seemed like a very straightforward, straightforward case. Y'all... The last time I fucking checked, you still do your fucking job and you do it correctly so you can determine these things without a shadow of a doubt. It don't sound like Coop Meaners just thought this wouldn't be a big case. No, you thought that because y'all is some white supremacist motherfuckers in Forsyth County, nobody was going to call y'all out on y'all's bullshit. Y'all thought y'all could hem this shit up tight and real cute and have Tamla in the fucking ground and nobody investigate what the fuck y'all did and how y'all tried to cover it up. Allegedly, because, you know, Black Gertrude Crime can't catch no lawsuit. Um, but as if this isn't already a shit show, the crime scene was so poorly investigated that the police didn't confiscate cell phones so they could grab the data from them. Now, by the time the GBI took over, two of the partygoers had new phones and the other devices were completely gone. Now, let's go ahead and talk about the findings in this autopsy report. And then I will get into the second autopsy and GBI's reopening of Tamla Horsford's case. So Tamla had blunt force injuries to her head, neck, torso, and extremities. Superficial abrasions were found on the right side of her forehead, her upper left eyelid, the bridge of her nose, her right temple, and her chin. 
There was a laceration on the right ventricle of her heart and a one-inch laceration on the inside of her wrist. Another laceration was found on her left forearm, and there were bruises and cuts on her fingers and shins. Now, I researched ventricle lacerations, and the primary search option for this was high-impact car collisions or blunt force traumatic injury stemming from abuse. Now, no one believes that these injuries could occur from a fall off a balcony because I just want to point out that she would have fallen onto the grass. She didn't fall onto rocks. She didn't fall onto glass. And it was literally soft grass. And there was no grass or dirt in her mouth, yet allegedly she fell face first into the grass. And what I remember from listening to my um, to Morbid podcast a couple years ago, I remember, I can't remember if it was Ash or Elena, but one of them bitches asked, okay, well, did she bang her head around the motherfucking grass too? Like, that is so valid because you're not going to get this from just jumping off of a balcony. And <sighs> this talks report, this talks report, but before I get into that, I also want to make a note of the fact that her fingernails were never tested for DNA, and they never did a rape kit on Tamla Horsford. Uh, there was a lot of things that they did not do, along with not taking pictures. So in her toxicology report, it showed that her blood alcohol content was three times the driving limit, and it also showed weed and Xanax. The Xanax, however, it never hit her liver, and that shows us that she had just taken it and family and friends reporting on how she never took Xanax and didn't have a prescription for it is definitely true. So the day after Tamla's autopsy, Mike Christian, he contacts Dr. Koopmeners. He just wanted to explain how Tamla was found and explain his theories about how he believes that she tripped and had a medical event. Now, as shitty of a person that Coop Miners is, do y'all know that? <laughs> This man like told him, he was like, that that didn't happen. It wasn't possible. There's no way that Tamla Horsford tripped at ground level and sustained these types of injuries. And here's where I'm going to note that this was the first story that was spun. Mr. Horsford says it. The attorney says it. The rest of the family says it. The party goers, along with the initial investigators at the scene, they all tried to, you know, spin this same tale that Tamla Horsford must have tripped and fallen and at, at the ground level. And there's even a crime scene photo. This is how we know that there was staging done at this crime scene because the ME is saying that there's no fucking way that she sustained these injuries from a trip and fall at ground level. Yet the crime scene photo it shows that someone kicked rocks into the mulch by her feet to make it look as if she had tripped and fallen. So Mike Christian, he documents his call with Coop Meaners and says uh, he was informed that Tamla suffered a broken neck as well as a subdural hematoma on the right side of her skull and a torn heart muscle. Coop Meaners, he later retracts this statement of her neck being broken. And this is all just so frustrating because he took no pictures that could show us these injuries that he's talking about or the actual state of injury that her body was in. Um, Mr. Leander motherfucking Horsford, he took more photos than Mr. Koopmeaners and he had to go ahead and sneak them. And that is just so fucking wrong 
on so many levels, y'all. So November 9th, and this part just, ugh. I cried when I was writing this out. I cried when I went over my notes. Like, at this point, my man raised no bitch. So I can go ahead and I'm going to just explain to y'all. Like, y'all probably think I'm fucking insane, but this is honestly sad and it pulls at my heartstrings in such a in such a rough way. So, November 9th, uh, Leander and his sons, they go to view Tamla at the McDonald and Son Funeral Home and Crematorium. And Leander, he first goes in and he remembered that when he looked at Tamla Horsford in her casket, he screamed, what the fuck? And he said, like, I must have scared everyone but it looked as if someone had painted tamla's face in black shoe polish lander immediately knew that they had put his wife in black face but he was told that the reason for this was to cover up the scars and bruises on her face now leander's two sons then this is when they kind of request to view their mother's body and initially like leander declined he was like no like this is grown man stuff like i don't want y'all seeing this uh, but they they became upset, so he allowed them to come in and view her as well. The oldest boy, he comes in and Leander says he didn't cry. Like, they just stood and they looked at her. And then the 11-year-old comes in. Now, this baby, this 11-year-old child, looked at his mama. Then he looked up at Leander and he told his daddy that this did not look like it was an accident. And neither of the boys wept because Tamla looked so unlike herself in that casket. Like, why the fuck would they do this to her? Why the fuck would they do this to Leander to just add insult to injury? You put this this woman in blackface to the point of where her husband is saying it looks like she was slathered in black shoe polish. I just... It is so far beyond the realms of my fucking comprehension, y'all. Now, the moment that this baby said it was not an accident, basically Leander said, like, you know what? If my son can look at his mother and say this, my 11-year-old son, I want every motherfucker in this bitch to look at her too. Look at what they did to my wife. So she remained in the blackface, I believe, for the visitation. And then at some point, the blackface is removed from her face. And this is when Leander requests to view his wife again. And he took pictures of everything, y'all. He said he was lifting up her clothes, taking pictures of all the injuries because it just didn't make any sense. And again, we have an 11-year-old child who looked upon his dead mother and said she did not leave this earth by accident. Like, this is just beyond evil. Beyond evil. So, uh, there was no media coverage about what happened to Tamla until her close friend, Michelle Graves, called them, basically called everyone the fuck out. Y'all give me a second. I got to take a little sip or something because, god damn, like, this should be having me stressed out. Okay, y'all, I'm back. I've learned to not edit so much, y'all, because I know a lot of y'all like how, you know, I really make like the episode seem like we chilling and that's exactly what the fuck we doing. And I hope I got this episode edited It is currently 402 and I want y'all to listen to this shit while y'all are on y'all way to the grind. So 
I'll start this whole segment over. Let me just take another sip because y'all please forgive me for drinking on this podcast. Not drinking, drinking, but just my throat is itchy. So there was no media coverage about what happened to Tamla until her close friend Michelle Graves basically called them the fuck out. Like y'all remember that the Chris Watts story, how the motherfucking friend, how she was just like, eh, eh. She was like, something something is off. Like, that is the type of friend that Michelle Graves is to Tamla Horsburgh. Like, Michelle stayed on their fucking necks. And eventually, celebrities and the rest of the world was calling for Tamla to get her justice. Now, February of 2019, Tamla's autopsy case is closed. And her cause of death is multiple blunt force injuries and the manner of death is an accident. Two weeks later, the Forsyth County Sheriff's Office closed Tamla's case citing her death as accidental. Tamla's family wasn't having that, so Dr. Adolf Shaker was hired to perform an independent autopsy. And all I can say is, oh my damn. Like, god damn. So, earlier I mentioned that Dr. Koopminers uh, said Tamla had a dislocated wrist that resulted in the laceration that Jose Barrera figured was her attempt at suicide. This was not a dislocated wrist, but it was a compound Smith fracture that not only should have bled, but it shouldn't have been inflicted post-mortem. That's right, y'all. It was determined that her wrist was fractured after she was deceased. And this wound should have bled. But m the most blood that was found on Tamla was on the cuff of her left arm, not her right. And there was no blood on the ground. Now, Shaker also called out the lack of bruising and broken bones in Tamla's skull and that it raises a flag to the cause of death um, being, you know, that she fell from a second story. Her case was reopened by the GBI, but before I get into that, let me tee y'all up because I really want to explain how everyone knew each other, starting with Ron Freeman. So beginning of the episode, I mentioned how young Ron Freeman starts his career at the Forsyth County Sheriff's Office in 1987. Prior to becoming sheriff, and this would be years later, you know, but for a time he worked at the Brookhaven Police Department. This man was forced to resign because he, he was caught trying to manipulate the personnel folder of an officer named Chris Shelton. Chris Shelton was exposed for posting pictures of mammy dolls in blackface and was about to lose his motherfucking job because he's a racist piece of shit. Ultimately, Chris was fired and Ron was forced to resign. Now, once Ron Freeman was elected as sheriff, he gave Chris Shelton a very comfy position at the Forsyth County Coroner's Office as a deputy coroner. Remember I mentioned Tamla's body wasn't at the GBI when it should have been? Yeah, she was, she was right there with Chris Shelton. Now, Ron Freeman is very good friends with Tom and Stacey Smith. And Tom Smith had given a very generous donation to his campaign when he ran for sheriff. And his campaign treasurer, Anna Dubois, is friends with Tom and Stacey as well. At the time of Tamla's murder, Jose Barrera worked as a pretrial court officer. He knew majority of the folks who worked at the courthouse. And he knew the lead investigator, Mike Christian, and Lieutenant Andy Kalin. And Andy Kalen was also taxed with investigating Tamla's mysterious death. Now, two weeks after the incident, Jose was caught looking up information on Tamla Horsford's case 
and he was suspended and then later fired because he was also caught looking into Michelle Graves, Tamla Horsford's friend as well. Now, when the GBI reopened Tamla's case, a lot of lies were uncovered, y'all. Leander was right. At no sleepover or party is it normal for everyone to just get up and collectively go to sleep at the same time. Jose Barrera initially said that him and John were in bed at 1, but that story changed to 1.30, as well as John's story also changed as well. From 1 to 1.30, then back to 1, they couldn't get it together. On the body camera audio, a deputy was heard saying, we've got multiple friends together. I've known Jose for a while. In another part of the body cam audio, you hear someone in the backyard say, she, that yeah, you hear one of the party goers, she's in the backyard and she's complaining because she has to get to work. One of the deputies say, I'm sure you're good because your boss is my wife. Earlier, I mentioned that Xanax was found in Tamla's system and that it hadn't hit her liver because she had just taken it. The GBI uncovered that Bridget Fuller is full of shit. And in the first interview, she said she didn't know how Tamla could have gotten Xanax. And she, she, she's never given Xanax to any of her friends. Now, once the GBI finally took their fucking phones and downloaded data, texts were discovered proving that Bridget had once given John Xanax um, first when she divorced her ex-husband and then after Tamla's death during that investigation because John was so stressed. Now Bridget wore the Xanax in a necklace around her neck and the GBI found out one of the partygoers also received Xanax from Bridget the day Tamla Horsford died. When the GBI interviewed John Myers on if she had ever received uh, the Xanax, you know John tried to lie. And the investigator was basically like, skirt, like, I already know. She did give you Xanax. And then that is when John was trying to figure out, uh, you know, when she received uh, the Xanax. So the last thing that I will say about Bridget is that her interviews go fucking crazy, y'all. Like, Bridget was off that shit, do you hear me? Like, again, like, I keep mentioning Morbid because they did such a great job covering the first part of Tamla's death. Um, but Elena Deadass tried to explain how Bridget acted. And it is the funniest and most accurate shit y'all will ever hear in your life. So in her first interview, Bridget did everything but answer the fucking questions. Mentioning how she is the mother hen. She protects children at all costs. Knowing good and damn well no children were present at the party. She mentioned several times that she has her faculties about her. And dog, I, I just can't. But if you want the best representation of Bridget's bum ass, go listen to Morbid. Uh, not only does she skirt around the questions, but she mentions shit that happened after she left. Which showed the investigators, and me too, that everyone got together to get their stories right. Now, despite the GBI knowing that Bridget uh, was the only attendee with a Xanax prescription, still no one knows how the drugs got into Tamla's system. So, Jose Barrera and John Myers, they both recalled that Tamla was face down in the grass with her hands to her side and her palms were up. So what is the fucking truth here? Because at the crime scene, it's documented that her left arm was extended and bent at the elbow. So who moved her arm? And now Jose Barrera had made a call to Lieutenant Andy Kaywin. And this came after Tamla died. 
And um, Jose advised Andy that he had moved her arm to check her pulse. Everyone had swore up and down that they had not touched Tamla's body. But the GBI confirmed that he in fact did. And the GBI confronts Barrera and he basically said like that's bullshit. And he said, I never said I touched her. I never said that um, I did anything. I never said that I assessed her. My thing about it is that you mean to tell me that you uncovered this man in multiple lies and y'all were just like, meh, like, it's fine. It's cool. Um, but another thing that was revealed is that Lieutenant Andy Kalen and Jose Barrera, um, I believe I mentioned this before, but they knew each other because they worked at the courthouse together prior to Tamla's death. Jose Barrera, y'all, he had two cell phones. And when he was interviewed by the GBI, he refused to give his consent for them to take the phone and download its content. This is interesting because a woman would go on record with the GBI and said that she was told that prior to calling 911, Jose Barrera made a phone call to Lieutenant Andy Kalin. The GBI said that there was no evidence of this call being made. Is that because y'all didn't check both the fucking phones? Like, why the fuck would Jose decline y'all taking his other cell unless there was something on it he knew he couldn't delete? Now, he said his reasons were that everyone was going to think uh, that they wanted, that he said everyone was going to think what they wanted anyway. So what is the point? He also mentioned that he had been burnt once before and he didn't want to get burnt again. Sir, a woman died in your ex-girlfriend's house. Tamla Horsford lost her life and folks lied about what they knew about it. Y'all get together and y'all try to get your stories right and this was never investigated properly. Like, Jose Barrera can kiss my fucking ass talking about being burnt before. He used his position to look up case details twice and that alone should have made him a suspect. But, you know, everybody knew everybody. And we're going to get into my Christian and I'll be wrapping this shit up shortly. Um, but this has got to be the most fucked up shit I've ever seen. So the GBI uncovered Snapchats of him referring to Tamla as the porch lady. And he was making fun of how Leander Horsford was notified of his wife's death. In the very legitimate Snapchat photos, Mike said, and I quote, Hello, sir. I know we've never met, but I'm here to tell you that your wife and the mother of your six children is dead. Oh, yes. I'm happy to report that she was really, really drunk and tripped, landed face down in the backyard. And I know you may have fun memories, but enjoy corralling these six boys who are now going apeshit, end quote. In another Snapchat, he texts, Greetings from racist cracker bastard murder covering up land. How are you? It's a nice rainy day. It's a nice rainy day. Good for digging shallow graves by the roadside, end quote. Like, oh my boy. The G in graves was capitalized. And everyone thinks that Basically, they're talking about Michelle Graves, the woman who was trying to hold them accountable for Tamla Horsford's murder and cover-up. So now, October of 2020, Mike Christian, he resigned from FCSO because there was an internal affairs investigation because he sent crime scene photos to women he was cheating on his wife with. Christian said that the women were lying and they were acting out of hurt. One of those women is the one who sounded the alarm about the alleged phone call that Jose Barrera made to Lieutenant Andy Kalin. This woman said Mike told her he was afraid to go down because of the officers who had set the scene. 
Oh, you mean how someone kicked rocks into the mulch to make it look like she tripped and fell at ground level? And this woman also said that Andy Kalin helped the partygoers come up with a story. Now, by the way, Andy Kalin was put in his position by Ron Freeman and surpassed all hiring processes and protocol along the way. Now, despite the GBI uncovering all this information, y'all, Tamla Horsford's case was closed again and ruled accidental. They had no cause to file criminal charges against the partygoers. What really drives me insane is how, even in the first investigation, many of the interviews were conducted in their comfy-ass houses. And John Myers was so bold, she even attempted to bribe my Christian with Dunkin' Donut gift cards. And you could hear it in their voices in 2018 and years later that Tamla dying at her house was one big-ass inconvenience to them all. And they all tried to sue Michelle Graves for defamation because Michelle was telling the truth and they lost the defamation lawsuit because the shit just made no sense. Now, Leander Horsford, um, I said this earlier and I'll say it again, he said that if it was an accident, he would accept it. Just make it make sense. Make my wife's death at your house make sense and stop fucking lying. Lying about when they went to bed and how they woke up. Linking up between the time of Tamla's death and their interviews to get their stories right. Buying new phones, deleting camera footage, looking up her case information and refusing to submit cell phones into evidence. Where there is smoke, there is fucking fire. And in any normal functioning state or area, this would be unacceptable. Unacceptable for Mike Christian to conduct an interview and he knew almost everyone in the house. Unacceptable to lose track of Tamla's body and then slather her in blackface to present to her husband. Unacceptable to lie about drugs especially when someone ends up dead like fuck all of these bitches and tamla didn't deserve to lay in that grass face down while they got their wits about them you don't just go to a sleepover and end up dead you don't but i'm going to go ahead and i'm gonna end this with the full letter that was pinned from ralph e fernandez to mr leander horsford and even though this was in 2020 before the additional findings from the gbi I just feel like it's so necessary because we have not forgotten. We are not going to forget. And we will definitely continue to keep hopes alive that Tamla just, uh, Tamla Horsford will get her justice. Like, mm, oh no. Like y'all, this, this makes no sense. Never, never should it be possible for somebody to lie to authorities and then be able to go home. Because I'm telling you, niggas ain't afforded that luxury. But let's get into this into this letter. So again, this is from this is from Ralph E. Fernandez to Leander Horsford, and it is very telling. So it says, Dear Leander, two weeks ago we finished the exhaustive review of the records related to the investigation into the death of Tamla. I'm glad we had an opportunity to conference today with the rest of the immediate family. Hopefully by Tuesday, I will have more detailed analysis. But for you today, however, I want to repeat some of what I told you. The review reflects that a homicide is a strong possibility. Witness statements are in conflict. A potential subject handled the body as well as evidence prior to the law enforcement arrival. Evidence was disposed of and no inquiry followed. The scene was not preserved. Evidence was inappropriately handled. The investigation was compromised by not unauthorized access and disclosure to potential targets and witnesses. A remarkable fact is that there were no photographs taken 
during the autopsy of Tamla's body. This had to have been done at someone's directive because such a practice is unheard of. Let us address one issue as a sample in reverse order from the above. It appears Tamla was involved in a struggle. There were abrasions noted consistent with that scenario. There were parallel scratches to one arm since they were fresh. Photos would have proven recent use of defensive force, but having no photos injures to our detriment. There was one x-ray, yet the injury noted to the cause of death appears nowhere. Getting the records has been another monumental task, to say the least. I could go on, and will, in a few days. Forsyth County Sheriff's Office employees have been the subject of much criticism. The case agent was a close friend of the subject who turned out to be the leak of the ongoing investigation. The town of Cumming has a history which raises eyebrows, and after conducting my extensive review, I have come to the conclusion that the truth never had a chance here. Let me conclude by telling you that my years of experience led me to believe that 80% of cases where African Americans die under mysterious circumstances end up closed or cold because there are no videos and the only witnesses are bad guys or good guys that are deep down really, really bad. And then I got to go to the next page, y'all, so bear with me. And then he goes on to say, then you have cases where law enforcement does a poor job and cares little to investigate thoroughly because of some connection or association to the perpetrators. Take the Amada Arbery slank recently. Without the video surfacing in the media, there would have never been an arrest in that cozy relationship between the perpetrators, prosecutors, and the investigators. A rookie lawyer that gets a video in a wrongful death case where a stock car is rear-ended by a speeding semi will win each time. A video of someone walking up to a bank teller, face uncovered, and firing a gun point blank will most certainly lead to conviction. But those facts are not what we are dealing with here. Here we are fighting an uphill battle because those who wear the badges and were entrusted with the investigatory task failed you. But this is not over. It will never be over. Be safe. Be strong. We will get to the bottom of this. Sincerely, Ralph E. Fernandez. Like, Goddamn. Goddamn. So even then, this letter basically summarizing everything that I have gone over in this podcast episode. It is so insane to know that her case was closed again. And I do believe that her body was cremated. So I don't even think, I mean, if the family was okay with it, I don't even think exhuming remains would be a possibility. I really hate the fact that I'm concluding this episode just on the hope that we have that Tamla might one day get her justice. Um, but I am going to have to conclude this. But I do want to let y'all know I am so appreciative. I know that in my absence, don't think I've been checking the motherfucking numbers. Y'all are continuously tuning in and listening to my older episodes. And I greatly appreciate y'all. I did not, when I say I did not expect Black Girl True Crime Podcast to blow up the way it did, I am telling you no fucking lies. And I am thanking the Lord for my blessings daily. But I really had to take a look at my foundation because I want to do this for as long as I can. All right. As long as y'all continue to tune in, I'm going to be here doing these hours of research and giving y'all this content. And I'm so grateful for the opportunity because, again, like always referring back to what I first said, it could have been two of y'all, 10 of y'all or none of y'all. But it is thousands of y'all. 
And again, I cannot do this without y'all. And again, I'm so appreciative. So on the next episode of Black Girl True Crime Podcast, I will be exploring what happened to Kendra Johnson. So y'all better tune the fuck in and tighten the fuck up. Uh, because that one is definitely a doozy. And then I'm going to muster up the courage to go ahead and read my reviews. I do hope that they are all good ones. Uh, y'all can definitely leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Y'all can definitely find me on Spotify. I do believe you can leave reviews there as well now. And then you can find my personal TikTok, Simone 93 K is spelled K-A-Y. And then you can also find my TikTok, Black Girl True Crime Podcast. I'm on Instagram, Black Girl underscore True Crime Podcast. And then you can find me on Facebook, but I'm still trying to get those groups up. Um, but my Instagram is growing pretty quick, and my TikTok has definitely grown. So I do hope that some of y'all are in, you know, my listener numbers. And again, I'm so appreciative of y'all, and I'm going to catch y'all next week. Y'all stay fed, y'all stay blessed, get the motherfucking uh, folded up clothes out that basket in the corner. Y'all take care and thank y'all for tuning in to Black or True Crime Podcast.